listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> when I was uh, 11 years old, I had to get glasses. I was very upset about this because I had some idea that glasses would make me ugly or the other kids would make fun of me or something like that. And I told my parents I would not wear them unless they forced me to. And so my parents said, okay, we're forcing you to. Um, And so that day we went to the eye doctor to pick up my glasses and I was very mad and I made sure everyone around me knew it. I kept telling myself I would never wear them and no one could make me. We got to the doctor's office and the doctor handed me the glasses that had my prescription lenses in them and told me to try them on. I very sullenly obeyed him. And the doctor said, look around. So I did. Oh my goodness, it was like a miracle had happened. Uh, I remember looking out the window and seeing a tree that was about 50 feet away and I had seen it through the window before I put my glasses on uh, when I first arrived, but now I could see each individual leaf on the tree. I genuinely didn't know that was possible from that distance. Uh, I said, I can see the leaves on that tree. My parents and the doctor nodded and smiled. And then I said, can everyone see the leaves on that tree? And my parents and the doctor nodded and smiled. I was stunned. My sight had deteriorated slowly enough that I hadn't noticed that it was happening. And I had just assumed that the way I saw was basically the way everybody saw. It was not until I put on the glasses that I not only saw differently, but that I even knew it was possible to see differently. Needless to say, no one had to force me to wear my glasses. I think we have a picture. Maybe if Garrett will put it up there for us. You can see, yeah, there I am. Uh, Just how happy my glasses made me. That picture pretty much summarizes my whole childhood right there. Um, You can take it down now, Garrett. Um, But needless to say, nobody had to force me to wear my glasses. They were the first thing I put on in the morning. They were the last thing I took off at night. Why? Because with my glasses, I could rightly see the world, which meant I could rightly understand it and I could rightly navigate it. So in today's text, we see the resurrected Jesus meet up with a pair of his disciples who are trying to make sense of the last few years, and in particular, the last few days of their lives. In those last three years, they have met Jesus. They became convinced that he was a prophet, in their words, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. They began to hope that he was the Messiah, the one who was going to redeem Israel. But in just the last few days, the Jewish leaders had handed Jesus over to be sentenced to death. The Romans had crucified him. And then on top of all of that, just that very morning, some of the women who were followers of Jesus had gone to the tomb. They found it empty. They apparently had a conversation with some angels who told them that Jesus was alive. And then some other disciples went to the tomb and they found that it was empty, just like the women said. So they're telling all of this to this stranger they've met on the road, not knowing that it's Jesus. So essentially what they're saying to him is, this is what's happened over the last three years, and we have no idea what it means. We don't know what's going on. We're deeply confused. And it's here that we see the crux of the matter. Jesus steps in and helps them understand what it all means by explaining the scriptures to them. 
So there's two key points here, I think. The first one is, it is the risen Jesus who gives them understanding. And second, the risen Jesus gives them understanding through the scriptures. Or to put those two points slightly differently, first, the risen Jesus is the key that allows them to rightly understand the whole Bible. And second, the whole Bible is about the risen Jesus. So those are the two points I want to I look at today. So the first one is that the resurrected Jesus is the key that allows us to rightly understand the whole Bible. The risen Jesus is our pair of glasses that allows us to rightly see and understand the Bible. And I think it's worth saying here, it's not just Jesus, it's the risen Jesus who is the one who gives us the ability to see and understand the scriptures. It is the Jesus who has done what he has come to do, who has completed the story. So this ending of the story helps make sense of all the rest of the story. Without that ending, the rest of it is not clear. So in our text, Jesus is talking to two of his followers, both of whom are Jews. From this information, it's very safe to assume that they are very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, and that's what we now call the Old Testament. They knew the stories in those scriptures. They knew the laws. They knew the prophecies. They knew the prayers. In other words, they knew what the scriptures said, but it's clear they didn't know at this point in their lives what the scriptures meant. We can see this in the way they summarize their situation with regard to Jesus. They say that they thought he was a prophet. They hoped he was the Messiah. They were under the impression that he was powerful before God. But then they saw Jesus get crucified, and now they're calling all of that into question. They thought they understood the scriptures, but now they're not so sure. What they're saying is, we thought we knew what a prophet was, but now we're not sure. We thought we knew what the Messiah looked like, but now we're not sure. We thought we knew what God was doing, but now we're not sure. So what's missing? Why don't they understand? They're two educated Jewish people who have studied and read the scriptures their whole lives. What's missing? Well, Jesus steps in to answer that question. The thing that is missing is himself, and again, more specifically, his risen self. The risen Christ is our decoder ring for the whole Bible. To put it in slightly more theological terms, the risen Christ is the hermeneutical key to the Bible. The risen Christ is the glasses by which we can see truly and rightly. The risen Christ brings the whole Bible into focus so we can not only see it, we can understand it. So Jesus tells these two disciples that the whole of Scripture is about him, which is a pretty amazing thing to say. Um, this whole book is about me. Until they see and understand that, they do not really understand the full meaning of the Scriptures. So one of the resources that our church uh, regularly uses is this book right here. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. My guess is many of you are familiar with it. If you're not, you should get one. They're fantastic. Um, the reason we use this resource is because it presents the Bible in this way, as being all about Jesus. The subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name, meaning Jesus' name. That's why it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, 
So we can look at a story from the Old Testament, say the story of Joseph in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it not only recounts the details of that story, but at the end, it's going to show us how that story about Joseph is foreshadowing Jesus' work of forgiveness and reconciliation. And in fact, I'm actually just going to read to you from this. This is the ending of the Joseph story. This is what it says. One day, God would send another prince, a prince like Joseph, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. Every story whispers his name. Jesus is telling the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that story about Joseph, it's about me. It's the same with the New Testament. Even though Jesus isn't working with the New Testament in this conversation he's having with the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, because the New Testament as such doesn't exist yet, the same is true of the New Testament. Um, we, uh, if we look at the Jesus Storybook Bible, we can see that everything the new church is doing and saying is pointing to Jesus, to the risen Christ. Um, here's how the Jesus Storybook Bible, for example, describes the conversion of Paul, um, who had a vision, interestingly enough, on the road to Damascus instead of the road to Emmaus. Uh, so here we go. So Ananias went to Saul. Brother Saul, Ananias says, it was Jesus you met on the road. And Ananias prayed for Saul. Suddenly, Saul could see again, but he saw everything differently. It's like Saul is putting on new glasses, right? He wasn't mean anymore. He even changed his name from Saul to Paul, which means small and humble, the very opposite of proud. And do you know what Ananias' name means? The Lord is full of grace. Grace is just another word for gift, which is funny because that's just what Paul's message was all about from then on. Paul sees the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and suddenly he sees everything differently. And not just differently, rightly. He sees everything rightly. Okay, I don't want to oversimplify this too much. The Old Testament has its own integrity and its own historical and literary context. We have to take those things seriously. We have to do the hard work required to understand those texts. But if we do all that hard work and yet do not see those texts through the lens of the risen Christ, we have not fully understood them. Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all their studying of the text wasn't enough for them to fully understand them. They needed the light of the risen Christ to shine on those texts before they could fully and truly understand them. In the same way, the New Testament text must also be understood in light of the risen Christ. They, too, of course, have their own integrity and their own historical and literary context, which require hard work to understand rightly. But all that hard work is for nothing if we don't let the light of the risen Christ shine on those texts. So the risen Christ is the light that shines on this book, this book we call the Bible, right here. It, and we have to let it shine on that book so that we can see it fully and truly. Without him, we will not understand it in the right way. So, that's our first point, that the resurrected Jesus is the key that allows us to rightly understand the whole Bible. The second point is that the whole Bible is God's chosen witness to the resurrected Jesus. 
Uh, there's a theologian named Daniel Migliori, and he describes the Bible as the unique and irreplaceable witness to the work of God in Jesus Christ. Unique means there's nothing else like it, and irreplaceable means nothing else can do what it does. This is exactly how Jesus treats the scriptures in this passage. The disciples on the road to Emmaus want to know what Jesus' life and work mean. They thought it meant one thing, now they don't know. They're confused. So they want to know how to understand it. In order to give them that knowledge, knowledge of himself, Jesus, interestingly enough, directs them to the scriptures. In our text, we see that he directs them to the whole scriptures. We are told in verse 27 that Jesus takes them through Moses and all the prophets. In verse 44, we're told that when Jesus appeared to the larger group of disciples, he said that Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are about him. The Hebrew scriptures, which again we call the Old Testament, were understood by the Jews as consisting of three parts. The law, which is associated with Moses, and it's the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets, which include uh, the books that we now call the major and minor prophets and the historical books. And then the writings, which include the books of poetry and Proverbs, and Psalms, of course, is the standout book in that section. So uh, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the whole of scriptures. So when Luke tells us that Jesus took his disciples through these sections, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's saying that Jesus took them through the whole of scripture. Now, again, like I mentioned before, the New Testament text didn't exist at the time that Jesus met these disciples on the road to Emmaus, but we can still say the same thing about them. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and the Epistles, Romans through Revelation, um, letters, these are all witness to the lordship of the risen Jesus Christ. Uh, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, this Christ is attested as the absolutely unique one, the incarnate one, the one who died and was raised, and it is this uniqueness of Christ in history that fills the entire New Testament. Here, there is no distinction between doctrinal texts and historical texts. Both are equally witnesses to the unique Christ. The entire New Testament, in all its parts, is, is intended to be interpreted as a witness, not as a wisdom book or as a book of teaching or as a book of eternal truth, but as a book of unique witness to a unique fact. It is the joyful cry, this is Jesus Christ. That's from Bonhoeffer. So, to put it into my own words, to say it as clearly as possible, when the followers of Jesus are trying to figure out what in the world is going on, Jesus directs them to the scriptures. Jesus himself treats the scriptures as the unique and irreplaceable witness to himself. If Jesus treats them that way, Probably we should too. Now, I want to make it clear. This is, I'm not saying that there's something magical about the Bible. There is not. The Bible is not, in and of itself, holy or magical or sacred or any of those things. That is not why we call it the unique and irreplaceable witness to Jesus Christ. Rather, it is God's choice of the scriptures as witness to himself that makes them what they are. 
The Bible is God's chosen instrument to point us to Jesus Christ so that we can know him. And how do I know that it's God's chosen instrument? Because in this text, God in Jesus chooses them for that very task. In explaining himself to his followers using the scriptures, Jesus is teaching us what the purpose of the Bible is. Its purpose, its task, is to point to and reveal Jesus Christ. The Bible is not holy or magical. It is not the word of God in and of itself. Rather, it is what it is because God has chosen it to be that thing. He has chosen it for that task. The Bible does the thing that God has appointed it to do, be a witness to Jesus Christ. In our text, we see Jesus himself appointing and using the scriptures for this very purpose. What this means is that we must not look to any other source, be it some other teacher, teaching, some other philosophy, our own experiences, our own ethical system, or even our own conscience to do this task. Jesus does not tell his disciples to examine their consciences. Jesus does not tell them to think about the experiences they've had. He does not tell them to search their feelings or emotions. He does not point them to a philosophical system. None of these things are bad, but also none of these things are given the task of witnessing to Jesus Christ. We should never treat them as if they were given that task. When Nathan and I were dating, we decided to read each other's favorite books as a way of getting to know each other better. So my favorite book was Little Women. Now, since Nathan is not here, I can tell this story without any opposition, but that's okay because my version of the story is the true one. So uh, the truth of the matter is this. Nathan didn't like my favorite book, and he thought it was too long. And so I was like, boo-hoo, I mean, come on. Uh, the tr so after he got through about 100 pages, he just quit reading. He didn't tell me this. He just quit. Um, I, I'm afraid it was only multiple months later after a somewhat public shaming that he finally finished the book. Um, but, and so he did, he finished the book. But imagine a different scenario. What if after the first hundred pages he decided ah, he didn't like Little Women so he would read some other book? So let's say he quit Little, Rim, with Little Women and instead he read Robinson Crusoe. And when we got back to get together to discuss our books, he said, I decided not to read Little Women, I read Robinson Crusoe instead. I would have said but the point of this exercise is to get to know each other better. And he might have said, I know, that's why I read Robinson Crusoe. Of course, this would not only have not made any sense, it would have been deeply offensive to me. I'm the one who gets to say which book helps him know me better. He doesn't get to choose my book, just like I don't get to choose his book. It doesn't matter if he doesn't like my favorite book. That's the book that's going to reveal something about me. Robinson Crusoe, of course, is a perfectly fine book, but it cannot reveal anything about me because I have not connected myself to Robinson Crusoe. For Nathan to assume, he didn't, this is all me making this up, but if Nathan were to assume that he could pick the book, I've, uh, that he could pick the book that would reveal me, is honestly the height of arrogance. No, he has to read the book I've chosen 
just like I had to read the book he chose. As an aside, we both really hated each other's books, and yet here we are 20 years later still happily married, so I don't know what that means. But, but it's the same with us and God. God has chosen his witness, and it is absolutely God's right to do so. We don't get to pick and choose what is the witness to God. God gets to choose it. It's his witness. And in this text, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that the thing God has chosen is this book we call the Bible. It cannot be replaced with something else, and nothing else is like it. This and only this is the witness. So when we go to other places or other things in an attempt to know God, what we're essentially saying to God is, I get to say who you are and what you're like. However, when we submit to the authority of the Bible, we are saying God gets to say who he is and what he is like. It is absolutely better to accept the witness and not like what it has to say about God than to pretend like something else is the witness. And maybe that's why Nathan and I are happily married, because we respected each other's right to choose our own witnesses, even though we didn't really like them. So the Bible is God's chosen witness to himself. So what does all of this mean for the church? I think it means that we have to take the Bible seriously. On the one hand, we must insist that this means that the Bible has a unique and irreplaceable position in the life of the church and in the life of individual Christians. It does not share or cede that position to any other human idea, philosophy, ethic, or conscience. We must take the Bible seriously as God's chosen witness to himself. On the other hand, taking the Bible seriously in this way does not mean treating it as a book of legalistic rules or treating it as a divine artifact that just fell straight out of heaven, complete and finished. Um, and it does not mean using it as a weapon to win arguments or to secure power. I'm not necessarily saying anyone in this room is doing those things, although I am saying that I think all of us are regularly tempted to do one of those things with the Bible. So what does it mean? How are we to take the Bible seriously? Well, I think it means a lot of things, but I'm just going to mention three. First, it means we have to approach the Bible with trust, believing that God will use it to reveal himself to us. So I've been a teacher now for 23 years, and I've realized that my best students always have one thing in common. Interestingly enough, it's not how smart they are or how many academic skills they have. It's that they trust me. I'm their teacher, and they trust me. When I ask them to do something they're uncomfortable with, they do it anyway, because they trust me. When I tell them to read a book they don't want to read, they read it anyway. When I tell them they're doing something wrong and suggest that they do it a different way, they don't get mad or hurt, they do it a different way. These students succeed because they trust me. They learn new things because they trust me. They change their habits and practices because they trust me. In the same way, the Bible is the teacher that God has given us. He has asked us to trust it because trusting it means that we are trusting him, the one who gave it to us. Approaching the Bible with trust 
is not easy, I should say, because it means that it has authority over us rather than we have authority over it. Approaching the Bible with trust means we will have to realize how many of our assumptions and our beliefs are quite simply wrong. It means we will get called out on, our ha on habits and practices that we have held all of our lives. It means we will be made uncomfortable and uneasy. But it also means we will learn things we never knew before. It means we will be given opportunities to know God and to become more like him. It means we will be changed. So we must approach the Bible with trust. Second, taking the Bible seriously means that we roll up our sleeves and get ready to do some fairly hard work. The Bible is an ancient text which was written over the course of many centuries by many different people in languages and cultures that are totally foreign to our own. We cannot assume that rightly understanding it will be easy. It will not, let me just tell you. But let me again be clear here. The central message of scripture is that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he is Lord. That message is clear. You do not have to have any kind of advanced education or any education at all to understand and believe that message. But the work of plumbing the depths of that declaration of scripture is the work of a lifetime. It is the work of the church. And it does indeed actually require hard work. We should be ready to do it or to listen to those in the Christian community who are doing it. We don't do this work on our own. We do it in the community of the church, and by that I mean the church both living and dead. And most importantly, we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, which I believe is next week's sermon or the week after that, so I'm not, I'm not going to touch on that too much, but that's super important. But it is nonetheless work, and we should be ready to do it. And we should not assume that reading and understanding the Bible is easy or simple. That's a good way to misunderstand it. Third, and finally, taking the Bible seriously means that we must always remember that the Bible serves Christ and is under the lordship of Christ. The Bible is not in and of itself authoritative. Jesus is in and of himself authoritative. The Bible is authoritative insofar as it is a witness to Jesus Christ. So the Bible doesn't serve itself, and the Bible doesn't serve us. It is not under our lordship. Jesus is lord of the scriptures just like he's lord of everything else. I have been to many academic conferences where atheists have spent their whole lives studying the Bible but still don't have any real understanding of it because they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus who is revealed in those scriptures. And of course, before we, too Christian, we Christians get a little too smug, uh, we must remember that Christians are also prone to leaving Jesus out of the Bible. I have seen, my guess is you have too, I have seen uh, Christians use the Bible to protect their own authority or their own position in the church or in other places. I have seen Christians use the Bible to promote the power of one political party over another. I've seen it on both sides. So have you. I have seen Christians search the Bible for verses or passages with a great passion that will uphold their own personal agenda, predetermined whatever it is. And I've seen Christians refuse to search the Bible because they don't want their own personal agenda to get upset. My guess is all of us have seen this. 
My guess is all of us have done it at one time or another. The Bible's task is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Our task is to listen to it. Our task is to let the witness speak, even when it says something we would rather not hear. If the, if the Bible never tells us something we didn't already believe, then we're not listening to it. Jesus loves us, and because of that, he is determined to do a new thing with us. The process for that to happen is death and resurrection. How do I know? Because the Bible tells us that's what happened to Jesus. Do I seriously think that following him could lead to anything less for me? If I do, I am not taking the Bible seriously, which means ultimately I'm not taking Jesus seriously. Karl Barth is a theologian who's widely recognized as the most important Protestant theologian of the 20th century, if not the last four centuries. Someone once asked him if he ever experienced doubt or discouragement or distance from God. Barth said yes, of course he had. His questioner asked him what he did when this happened. Bart replied, I tell myself this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is the good news. Jesus loves us. He loves us so much that he became one of us, he died with us and for us, and he rose from the dead. Because Jesus loves us, he's going to share this victory over sin and death with us. How do I know all this? Because the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the scriptures you've given us. Forgive us when we use the Bible for our own purposes. We ask that you send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to what it says about you so that we can know you better and become more like you. Amen.